Welcome back, Kafkan Bond listeners. We're here with episode 121 today, and today we're talking starvation, poor performance, and lost dreams. Our, our special guest today, Michelle Bumgartner, and we want to talk today about her life, um, her struggles with weight, um, feeling obese, and then the struggle, struggles to also reach her dreams. Now, Michelle is an athlete with a, uh, and when we talk about an athlete, uh, we talk about someone who's had a remarkable career, but it's also had a lot of disappointment and unlucky scenarios, really, Tony, hasn't she? Uh, absolutely, she has. So it's um, welcome, Michelle. Uh, lovely to have you on board. We, as uh, the guys know, we have known each other for too many decades to talk about. Thank you for having me on. No, it's an absolute pleasure <laughs> having you here. So we've been yeah. friends for a long time, uh, <laughs> so a very long time. But uh, yeah, we, you've, you've, you have, um, you know, an amazing career, uh, to put it bluntly. Uh, a lot of people will know you from the sporting uh, from the sporting world, uh, but do we want to touch on that, Jamie? Do you want to start yeah. there? So I guess uh, it's great being going into your bio and seeing it at such a young age when you started, and, and we'll want to cover off on that. But at age eleven, you won two Victorian state state championships. Fourteen, become Australia's leading track athlete, breaking national records, um, and another one, the four hundred and eight hundred meters. At 17, a gold medalist in the Pacific Conference Games in which five nations competed. Um, and you also qualified for the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. Now, I think we want to touch on this today as well and the political pressure around those games, um, which you decided not to attend. Um, Amy, I think, I think it's important to add that she didn't just qualify for the 1980 Olympic Games. She was at the age of 16, she qualified. And at that time was the youngest ever Australian athlete to ever qualify, track athlete to ever qualify uh, for the Olympic Games. So that was actually quite amazing. And I think that's where the tags, that's where the tags come along, the exciting talent, the golden girls of um, Australian athletics. So that youth in sports, and, and we'll get on to your later career, but let's start off there. And what made you jump straight into athletics at that young age? Um, and we'll build up to sort of that first qualification. But was athletics in the family or were you just always drawn to run? Well, yes, Jamie. Uh, my father was a professional footballer in those days. Yep. Of course, in those days, they weren't paid terribly well. But Ivan Baumgartner and he played for Geelong and then later St Kilda. So there was definitely um, a sporting prowess there. Mum was quite a, a good swimmer in her day. Yep. And uh, what brought me into athletics was really a school teacher. The school teacher rang my father and said, look, you've got to get her into athletics, into little athletics at that stage. Yep. As yep. this girl was beating all the boys at that point, it was easy to, to beat the boys at 10 <laughs> years old. <laughs> so you, so you, start, uh, yeah. you, you started out by running in those state championships at 11. Um, you know, is that just, was there any training back at that age or is it just rock up and run fast? Uh, it was pretty much rock up and run, run fast. I was lucky enough not to have pushy parents yeah. uh, at that point. There were children that uh, parents were training them probably every day. It was very sad to see. We didn't see them progress onto the senior level. Whereas for me, it was just about fun. And we just turned up at little athletics. Yeah. And at that point, I was, you know, everything. A hundred runner, 200 long jumper, high jumper. A shot put, very poor one at that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So 
I guess when you get a little bit older and, and we start to um, move into that sort of 14 to 16 bracket, as, as Tony said, qualifying for the Olympic Games at 16 is just remarkable. We only see that we only see that nowadays with um, skateboarders. I think they're coming through at about 14 to 16. And, and, yeah. that, and, the, but, and the odd gymnast as well. And the odd gymnast. But, you know, I, I guess... 14 is when it, come, it becomes a bit more serious for you um, and that's when you sort of start to run in Australian championships. Yes, absolutely. I was fortunate enough to have a, a remarkable coach called Brenda Carr and having a female coach that understood the female body and me and she was very cautious. We only trained three times a week and, you know, limited training. She just nurtured the talent and it, it was a remarkable start to my career where I broke all the Australian records. I still hold those junior records. Uh, Kathy Freeman broke my under-20 record. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's amazing that they still stand. Yeah. Like, yeah, Kathy Freeman coming through, we, I, I guess we had um, yeah, Nova Paris in the other week talking. So it's incredible, you know, even her as an athlete, that those records still stand to this day. Yes, yes. It's, it, it does surprise me, actually. Something um, you're really it, proud of. Yes, exactly. And on very little training, which I think we should see at that young age. Yeah. So I want to focus on the 1980 Olympic Games um, and you qualified. What did you actually qualify for in those Olympics? 400 metres. And it was my opportunity to run in that. And really the 4x4 was my big opportunity to run beside Raylene Boyle, my idol, someone I admired immensely. And it was a terrible shame to miss those Olympics through political pressure. Afghan, so what, Afghanistan. Yeah, what, 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 happened around that time, what happened around that time? Um, that, that's pre-my time, guys, and, and as yes. we were sort of laughing before, and we'll get on to what you're doing now. Jamie, I still do remember my father being absolutely furious at the thought. Uh, as you know, Michelle, my father was a middle-distance runner and yes. uh, you know, in the UK, but, it was, um, but he was furious at the thought that politics uh, is putting pressure on athletes who have trained their entire life for what might be that one chance to go and do well and the idea mm-hmm. of boycotting he said is the worst thing uh that and it's he he made the i remember him making the comments um boycotting the 1980 olympics will not make russia change their mind about anything they're doing it's exactly the, the political pressure put on uh young athletes to give up their dream it was mm-hmm. just horrendous i remember i i do remember it vividly in 1980 i was 11 years old and i had the dream of you know being an olympic swimmer um and yeah so the idea and when dad explained it that way how would you feel i was 11 you know if someone said you've qualified but you can't turn up uh and i i was nearly in tears at even thinking about it so to actually have qualified michelle at the age of 16 it must have been horrifying the pressure that was put on a 16 year old yes all the western countries jamie just to quickly reiterate uh were boycotting because russia had invaded afghanistan and the irony on this is we're watching now the United States withdraw from Afghanistan after being there for 20 years. Yeah. Well, so yep. the irony but, of politics. Yeah, definitely. To our and lives it, and, and I, our health. And I think at 16, you know, that joy would have been like, you know, not, not even understanding what was going on in the world and all this pressure coming on to you at that point. It, it would have been, as Tony said, overwhelming in that regard. Yeah, and just turned 16, you know, yeah. just a month into it. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was Incredible. devastating, but they so, said you've got your career ahead of you. And, uh, yes, yeah. and we'll talk about that. 
I was about to ask that. So, you know, careers ahead of you, you're the golden girl of Australian athletics. Um, I think at the age of 16, you'd be thinking, well, the next one's four years away. Um, the age of 20, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to be fit and raring to go. What happened during those four years? What was the pressure like to be Australia's golden girl of athletics? You know, I know that you had sponsorships through Nike. Um, you know, what was that four-year period like for you? Um, and unfortunately, it was tumultuous to say the least, my parents went through a very bitter divorce when a, a year later and my father left and he was the main role model and person that backed my athletic career and he just disappeared. I was just lost. I didn't know what to do. Uh, thereafter, I started to mature as a 17 and a half year old, quite a late maturer because of all the training, I guess. And I was told that I was too heavy I started to develop some muscle, which was not popular in those days. They wanted to see the same lean, lanky uh, young athlete that I was. I looked more like a little giraffe. Long, were, you long five, were you five foot ten at 16 as well, Michelle? No, I was about five foot eight and a bit at that okay, point. Okay, so you'd grown a couple of inches in height as well by that yes. stage as well. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. yep. And I started to develop uh, muscle of which... I, I same as what I am now. I'm about the same weight now as what I was when I was about 17, 18. And they didn't like the look at the muscle. Muscle wasn't popular on a woman at that point. So I was told to dart. And uh, for the first time in my life, I had to uh, control the calories that were coming in and out. No one talked to me about what was healthy or what really to eat. It was all about losing weight no matter what. And so this unhealthy um, merry-go-round, a yo-yoing effect of eating too little, um, eating the wrong foods, and also combined with incredible ambition and dedication. You've got a young athlete that will do anything to achieve her goals, and she will do anything to listen to her coaches. I lost too much weight. I uh, became very ill and anorexic. What, what, did you, what did your diet consist of during that time? Well, sadly, it started with uh, a small breakfast. At that stage, it was just cereal. That's all people knew in those days. And yeah, many yeah. of these cereals are riddled with sugar, uh, a little bit of fruit. Um, Nutri-grain gives you the energy. Remember that, Ed? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I just remember at one point it was going down to an apple and then I was eating chicken broth in the evenings um, with very little else. It was just dreadful. And the worst, I think, the greatest tragedy is I would step onto the track and the distance coaches would come up to me and say how good I looked. I was skinny as a rake and they thought that was fabulous. So I was getting a lot of positive reinforcement for dramatic health issues. I was very sick. Our doctor you, got you me ended, off the you, in the end. You actually ended up uh, anorexic, is that correct, Michelle? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yep. So it's uh, so when we talk very sick, we're talking horrendous health uh, health issues. So anorexia, of course, uh, doesn't just make you look uh, in like a skeleton, basically. But on top yep. of that, you're still training uh, yes. and, and putting in immense hours on the track training as well. Yes. You would have had to keep away from the weights, uh, obviously, and on yes, top of that, never touch weights. Which is yeah, sad. And, top, and top of that, you're not allowed to eat, uh, mm -hmm. and you're being told you look really good, uh, but the performance wasn't coming out on the track. Is that correct? During that stage no, as well, the performance started to dissipate quickly. 
um, what was remarkable, the only thing that was keeping me going was my attitude. And the world of anorexia is alarming because your mind tells you that you look great. Your mind tells you that you're healthy and it carries you through in this dreadful cycle of ill health, muscle loss. Um, you know, I didn't get to the stage of organ failure. I was lucky enough that my mother combined with a doctor, a medical doctor, said get her off the track. And it was a very hard road back because my mind wanted to be thin. My mind told me I looked good. And we had to retrain the mind. I've always loved your mother, as you know, Michelle. Uh, She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. Uh, But that would have been really, really difficult to hear for you from your mum to say, Michelle, I'm more worried about your health than you making an Olympic Games. Correct. Yes. Yeah, it would have been Um, very difficult for, for you to hear. How do, how because do, I know your relationship with your mother is very it's beautiful. Um, yes. How did that come coming from you know your your major influence in life? How did that make you feel at that time? Mm-hmm. As you know, as a what an eighteen year old, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen year old. I listened to her. I really did, but it was it wasn't without its struggles because I had difficulty eating, and so what I was doing was sitting at the family meals and eating well and then quietly going off to the toilet and, and uh, putting my fingers down my throat and throwing it up, which is a dreadful thing to say that's bulimic um, because that mind, I hadn't conquered the mind at that point. So you'd um, give it, So at that stage you had actually given up sport. You had, uh, you had uh, so you'd given up sport, uh, well, given up athletics. Um, yes. So does that mean you've also, you'd also given up your dream at that stage of competing in the Olympics? Exactly. I really didn't come back to athletics for nearly six years later. But your it mind, took about but six your, years. But your mind still hadn't healed at that stage. You were still no. putting your fingers down your throat, basically. That went on for about a year or two. Um, unfortunately, my weight was coming back. I was put. I put on about another two kilo, couple of kilograms. Um, but I hadn't conquered the mind at that point. So then I went through a phase of overeating. So this limit was terrific. You can eat what you like, <laughs> put the fingers down the road, and off you go. But it's terrible for your health. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so, so I had to master that. I really suffered from that uh, yo-yo cycle of overeating and having a very bad relationship with food. So with, with that, while you're going through these challenges, um, where else did you focus your life on? I believe that you went to college and studied and, and also yes. become a school teacher. Exactly. Physical education was my major. and become a school teacher and thereafter really became committed to studying the science of nutrition. At that point, it wasn't as advanced as what is is now. Uh, Since those days, I've become a clinical nutritionist, nutritionist, not a dietitian. I work alongside dietitians, though, which is wonderful. Anyway, I went back to San Diego University and studied the science of nutrition And over the last lockdown of four months here in Victoria, I went back and and finished my certificate with Precision Nutrition, which is one of the largest nutrition companies in the world. And it just changed my world because it put science behind the books that I'd written over the years. So over those years, two of recovery, I wrote numerous books on health and wellness. One of them's called It's Not About Your Weight, It's About Your Health which is so important in bringing back 
through my life experiences of forget the weight loss, concentrate on our health, concentrate on being the best person you can. Michelle, can I circle back to what you just said there? Mm-hmm. Concentrate on your health. It's not about the, uh, you know, the the weight, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to circle back to you. I think you were 23 when you became head coach and director at Kerry Grammar Girls, uh, Girls Sport. And I think back then, um, Kerry had probably only been co-ed for around about four years at that stage. Yes. So yes. they brought you. They brought you in specifically. Uh, I mean, you're obviously uh, still very high profile. But that, I think they brought you in specifically to help young women in sport. Now, from everything that you had just been through, from qualifying for the Olympics at a young age, having a great role model as your first coach, then then having coaches that were saying, uh, obviously not the same coach, but having new coaches that were saying you're too fat and becoming anorexic. How did you develop in respect to working with these young girls who you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, um, who see this, you know, glamorous ex-Olympian as their head sportsmaster. Uh, how did you work in respect to developing them and developing their mindset, not just teaching them to run fast? Absolutely. In fact, my favourite students were working with the students that were really average to below average, let's say, in the, in the sport arena, but fabulous people. So my whole approach as a a coordinator of girls sport and a phys ed teacher at that stage was to focus on the whole person, the whole health, their emotional health, their, uh, their physical health. Their, um, and that performance wasn't the, the end product. It was to, for them to be happy. And I wanted to develop lifestyle habits for a lifetime, not performance. And that's where I was in a little bit of conflict with working in a, a large school like that, with the APS sports, it was called at that stage, because it was hugely uh, performance related. And my approach wasn't that. I wanted these girls to love to move their bodies whatever way they enjoyed. So to bring out a variety of different sports, not just the sports that were allocated to us, uh, to learn to walk and, and love to walk and, and to enjoy um yoga and stretching or dance whatever it was that would give them lifestyle habits yeah so lifestyle habits that are very positive that they could bring into those young girls now probably in their probably my age or you know a bit younger but um so i mean there's not a big age difference between us there's only about three years four years but it's uh but basically it's a case of you're actually setting them up for life Yes. Uh, and actually teaching good, positive life habits and being a great role model, which is, you know, something that you lost in the athletics world uh, yes. between qualifying for 1980 Olympics and going into this. So, but you did, you did after that decide to make a comeback uh, in athletics, and you actually, yes. you actually, I mean, you, your dream of um, 84 and 88 Olympics was gone, but you did come back and qualify for the Commonwealth Games in 1990. So what made you actually come back to the sport of athletics and start competing again? Yes, um, really the main influence there was uh, my boyfriend at the state that time, Paul mm. Reedy, a dual Olympian, uh, Olympic silver medalist, dual Olympic silver medalist in both Olympics. And in rowing, his I great, Yes, yep. yes, in sculling. Yeah, uh, okay. Um, and he... and rode with Peter Anthony, a very famous scholar at that time. 
and in the rowing community worked with a mind coach and his name was George Kaprinsky and he used a lot of hypnotherapy and visualization and mind training techniques and I still hadn't overcome the hurdles. I made a comeback and I found that that last 100 metres on my 400 metre race or my 800 metre race, I was crumbling. Something was happening. And I remember Ron Clark at that stage saying nationwide on TV and Australian championships that was all in my mind. And I was devastated. I was shattered. I felt humiliated. But he was right. It was in my mind. And so Paul redirected me to George Kaprinsky. And after about the third session, we worked going into the subconscious mind and seeing what is holding me back. What is my Achilles heel? What is this thought or this experience that I have that I'm carrying in my body? And it's that, that uh, self-talk that was going on subconsciously that I wasn't really aware of. And when we went deep into about a third session, we uh, went down deep into a favourite place where I was in my subconscious mind. I was in Queensland, a place I love. And uh, there, there was someone, the most important person in my life, was uh, sitting at the picnic table in this going down deep into the subconscious mind. And uh, I would have thought it was my mother. I was very close with my mother, very close with my coach at that stage, very close with my boyfriend. They were the three people that my conscious mind told me would be there. And lo and behold, there was someone I hadn't seen for about five years. And it was my father. And I had a strained relationship with my father. He had left my mother. I was very angry. He had left me. He had left my athletic career. And we realized that there he was sitting there, the picnic table. It was a life-changing moment for me. Something that my conscious mind couldn't find. And we realized then that it was my father that in every race, he was at every race when I was younger. He never missed a thing. And he often didn't see the finish line because my father always sat at the last 100-meter mark and he would yell at, go, Shell, go, Shell. And that was my trigger to accelerate. So in my father not being in my life and I made my comeback, it wasn't a surprise when you really look at it deeply that that's why I was crumbling at that last 100 metres. I was waiting for the trigger. I had trained my mind to wait for the go shell. It's amazing, so, it's amazing yeah. the subconscious mind and everything that actually sits in there that, you know, things that we don't need. And I've, I've done hypnotherapy a couple of times with um, a very good friend of the firms and of mine, Kate Thomas. And it was actually quite interesting of, you know, my relationship with food was because of certain events that had happened to me. My relationship uh, of wanting to achieve was because of certain events. And these things would have been the last thing that I would have thought of. But when mm -hmm. it was actually raised and you start doing some investigations and you start asking some questions, I sat down, had a real deep and meaningful with my mum for about five hours on it. And it was actually quite amazing to understand where these blockages were and why I was the person I was, was actually because of these things that were stuck in my subconscious that you hadn't even thought of. And for you, it was just not hearing go shell from, uh, from your dad. Absolutely. And having that relationship with him again, yeah. um, I realized that I desperately wanted that relationship. And yep. since then we, I contacted him and we rekindled that relationship. It was a struggle, but we rekindled it 
it and it enabled me to be the mother I am now, yep. to, you know, to bring this amazing grandfather. He was a, wasn't such a great dad. He was a difficult dad, but he was a wonderful grandfather. And so I brought him back into my life. And, and if we can just go back to now 26-year-olds, I don't have the children at that point, bringing dad back into my life at that stage enabled me to become, by the media term, on, on the back page of the newspaper at that stage, I, um, after working with George, I, they called me the steam train. Uh, my new nickname came the steam train after someone who was crumbling at the large 100 metres George and I were able to discover what was the, tr the trigger, what was the cause of it. Um, we, we had to develop strategies to get around that. One of the strate strategies was to rekindle my relationship with my father. And the other one was that we learned to do some mind training on how I could become the steam train without dad there present. He wasn't necessarily always going to be there again. So we did mind training and mental rehearsing, constant rehearsing of that race and how I would trigger myself. Goshell would come in my subconscious mind and I'd trigger myself forward and I uh, got the Olympic qualifier time of my PB at that stage was just one hundredth of a tenth of uh, breaking the two-minute mark. I ran two minutes and one hundredth, giving uh, the Olympic qualifier. Some amazing running there. But the interesting thing is that to make a comeback after many years of being ill and all the rest of it, to make mm -hmm. a comeback at age 26 in athletics is pretty unheard of. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, usually people have had it all the way through and they're, you know, if they're, if they're long distance, they're usually peaking at 26, you're actually making a comeback in middle yes. distance at that stage. Uh, I mean, Linford Christie did win an Olympic gold medal as a grandfather, but that aside, <laughs> uh, we, you know, so he was a very young grandfather, obviously. But yes. the you then you went and actually, interestingly enough, you qualified for the '92 Olympic Games in Barcelona, uh, which was probably one of the great epic Olympic Games of modern era. Um, but it was, but you didn't get to attend because you ruptured your Achilles and yes. and ended that so. You qualified for two Olympic Games and mm -hmm. never got to compete in any. Yes, yes, yes. It, a tumultuous career. It must have, it really must have been, but it, that must have been emotionally devastating for you at the same time. Yes, um, really the ruptured Achilles was a very bad management. I had a chronic uh, Achilles uh, inflammation yep. and um, and we – we didn't look long-term. I really had the possibility of running when I was 30. Women, women often peak around 30 in middle distance. Yeah. But instead, this is where the science did fail me. I uh, put a cortisone injection in my Achilles, um, which created the rupture. Hmm. So the cortisone injection in the Achilles tendon was a reckless um, action. Yeah. Weakened the tendon. We need. We should have rested it. That set aside that Olympics, waited yep. for another one, or yep. even a World Championships, yep. and I ruptured it uh, six weeks later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, so you've you've had a tumultuous career without any doubt. You've had major health issues, uh, but what mm -hmm. I find really interesting, and this is a, a testament to who you are and your willpower, is you've really you you turned all that around. I mean. It's, uh, 
you were co-founder of a leading sports and marketing management firm, you know, back yes. in 91 when, when those things were unheard of. Uh, I was very successful there. You know, you're part of actually um, the change of getting AFL football, VFL football was at the time. Was it AFL 30 years ago? AFL, yeah, it still was AFL at that stage and, and they were paid. Yeah, uh, but you've gone from them sure. getting pocket money to actually yes. getting uh, career life-changing checks as incomes. Yes. Um, you've gone on to actually study all the areas where you suffered, nutrition, uh, uh, hypnotherapist, a life coach, and yes. I do know you are a very very uh, great bike rider. You annoyed me as a long distance guy when we would go out <laughs> riding together because you'd always want to go off sprinting. It's just like, I'm not doing it, Michelle. <laughs> so, I'm not a sprinter. The big boys Stop would it. go by and off I'd yeah. go. Sorry, Tony. Yeah, I, said, I said, not interested. This is a nice, long, six-hour casual tempo ride for me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sprinting with you. So, But you do have uh, endless, uh, you know, you're boundless basically energy about you but 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 i do remember uh, how long ago would have been now 20 years ago michelle we're sitting in um my old office in st kilda road and i actually i actually said to you you got you got to actually start developing this into a business your story is amazing you are this i actually remember going to the commonwealth games if you this you and i we went to uh, uh see one of the track days together and mm-hmm. what i found amazing turning up there was Everyone, no one had a clue who I was because I was a nobody, but every, everyone still remembered who Michelle Baumgartner was. Uh, you know, the amount of people that came up and said hello, uh, yes. you know, and just started chatting to you was, was quite uh, amazing. But so everyone still knew exactly who you were, um, et cetera. So he said, you know, you've got to put this and that's, and I know you went off and really started this business and, and where you are today and helping 50-year-olds basically with their health but you've gone from writing that very first book actually start going out there you've got some amazing success stories with your clients but what we speak about is you know to our clients is with our SME owners you can be working long hours you're entrepreneurial making good money but if you don't have your health and your mind in the right place as well everything can crumble quite uh, quite dramatically so you've actually brought all of your failures into uh, the world of health now. So do you, do you want to just talk about that? Because we will put links to your bio and everything so you can help you really focus on the sort of 50-year-old uh, plus age group on getting their health in order. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, yes, Tony. And thank you. Uh, I did tribute my books six years ago to you and helping me write them and inspiring me. You've I been saw such my name immense, in there. I was quite shocked. Immense, I, I, I might have blushed a bit when I saw my name. <laughs> so. Well, immense inspiration to, to me and you still are in turning that around. And I've numerous, I wrote numerous books after that. It's not about your weight. It's about your health. Um, and my passion, it, the inner world of health, talking about our thoughts and our, um, how they going deeply into our limbic system and then they create our emotions and our feelings which create our actions and it's these emotions and feelings that we really have to address now just recently i had been living in the united states for the last 20 years actually as tony knows then came out to australia again in 2007 for four years and back to the united states three children husband ex-husband now now back in Australia for a couple of years and I realised that the 50-year-olds, this, this market is, 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 is ignored, it's neglected. I went back and did a 
personal training course and sitting there as a 50-year-old in these courses and feeling humiliated by my age in the sense that there was they were 50 is classed now suddenly as the old age. And you, you oh, saw right. that with the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine at one stage, all 50-year-olds bar had to have it. Now it's gone to 60 and under. And, you know, whatever it is, we were targeted and we weren't appreciated for who we are and what we are. And I always say to people that are 50 and over, don't be defined by your birth date and don't be defined with what society expects of you based on, on a number, okay? We are not going to be defined by a number. Chron chronological age is, our, is a number. It's our birth date. But it, what we need to be defined by is our biological age. It's our lifestyle habits. It's the way we conduct our lives on a daily basis, what we eat, what we think, how much we exercise. This is really what ageing is all about. And so this is where I've revised my books and I'm still working on that and I'm just about um, to revise my whole web page. I'm working with my web designer on that and understanding that we have choices here and we can make them but we won't be defined by what society is telling us. We're not a number. And Michelle, as, as you and I both know with our parents, you know, it's, um, you know, for example, my father, who was a very healthy man, non-drinker, non-smoker his whole life and ended up having a stroke at the age of 62, which I do blame sugar on. Um, yes. He was very much an emotional, he would keep all these uh, stresses inside, wouldn't she? He was a typical SME owner, keep all these stresses inside put on a lot of weight, um, always put on the happy face. Everything was always good and was an emotional eater. You know, the amount of chocolate-coated uh, donuts uh, crumbs you saw in his car was just, you know, ridiculous. He could put yes. it all together and make a six-pack of donuts out of it. So it was – but that, that was dad. And I, I actually saw myself going down the same route at one stage in my life as well. So it's interesting that you do speak about – it's not just about what you put in your, in your mouth. It is about your mindset as well when it comes to understanding who you are and having that healthy mindset also when it comes to your relationship with food. Yes, the mindset is one thing we can really control because, as we, I spoke about prior, it creates our emotions and our feelings, and that's what creates our actions. So that emotional eating, and um, that, that, that person that lived through that in my early, late teenage years and early 20s, so all of that wisdom and, and, and being in that world, that mindset world, it's, it's amazing being in the world of being anorexic and bulimic and because the world is your mind, it's all the mind that is doing this and remarkable how those thoughts can just crumble you. Thoughts are only ideas and hypotheses and thoughts can lie to you at any time and we have to learn to question them. And so this is my business is primarily made around that. It's, it's primarily focusing on our mindset because then and only then can I offer my nutritional expertise in getting people to, to create that relationship and that want to change the way they're thinking so they can change their actions. Yep. No, it's, it is interesting on the mindset. It's, it's the, um, it might have been a Henry Ford quote, but it was a case of if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're going to be right either way. 
exactly. Uh, it, it is about that mindset and changing that mindset to start with. So, Michelle, in in uh, winding up today's podcast, basically it's a case of that, as I was mentioning with, uh, you know, even my father, his quality of life, he was, he, you know, he was kept alive for the last 10 years of his life and unfortunately last six years of his life with Alzheimer's, but he was kept alive by basically just taking tablets and yes. but he had no quality of life whatsoever. Now, I've stated that I want to live to openly, that I want to live to 105, but I don't want to be kept alive by machines and tablets. So, you know, it's, it is about my health and my mindset to be able to do it. But one of the interesting things I heard a quote once and said, you know, if you don't look after your health in your 30s, 40s and 50s, what's going to happen when you're 75 and you're a grandparent and you can't bend over to lift up that five, kilometer, uh, five kilo weight, which is called a grandchild? Uh, and, I, and I thought, how true is that? You know, how true is it when you've got a three-year-old who wants to go and kick a soccer ball in the backyard and you can't do it because physically you're yes. just not capable of it? There's no reason why at the age of 75, we can't still be fit and healthy in mind and body. Absolutely. Look, I'm the same weight as I was when I was 20 when I got my weight stabilised. Yeah. Um, there's no reason you can't cannot be that person. And still it's, an amazing athlete at the same time. Quite an amazing look, athlete. I competed just prior to COVID that year. I competed open age group with the uh, St Kilda team in yep. the national championships and we got Joe the silver Coombe medal. There. Yeah, with Joe yes. Coombe, I saw that. Yep. Yes, with the A grade and we got the silver medal. So you can absolutely be there. And it was quite funny because there was another 50-year-old there that was an A grade athlete too. And we certainly added up the, num- the age group numbers, but it was the open category. We were racing against 20-year-olds. You, we can do that. There's just there are going to be a different approach. Our recovery is a lot slower, so we are really focus on more nutrition, more protein at this stage, and we can talk about that at another point. But we can, with subtle changes, it's just those tiny little action steps we take to just adjust uh, what we're doing, how we're eating, adjust how we're training. We, as we get older, we train smarter and we eat smarter. But it really should start in your 20s. For me, after all these illnesses, I developed this in my mid-20s to become a smarter eater, smarter at training and smarter at thinking. Let me show you, you are in, uh, in sort of closing out, Jamie, I'll let you close out, but you are an inspiration to so many. Uh, and more importantly, you help so many as well. You help people actually get a great relationship with themselves first. And then as a result of that, a great relationship with food, a great relationship with body image, and you really help people, uh, you know, experience a better life in all areas through that as well. So it's not just a case of, you know, eat this and don't eat this. Is, is in, uh, so you are a true inspiration to many. Uh, Jamie, I'll let you uh, finish up. Thank you, Tony. Yep. Yeah, and, and just in closing on that, I think it's great to hear your story and, and the struggles. You know, I've, I've always loved athletes and, and hearing about different sports people, and it's great to hear you talk about the struggles that you went through, but how you overcome them and, and the good that you're doing in the world now for it. So, yeah, we do appreciate your time and coming on today, Michelle. Thank you, Jamie. And just my last message to everyone is remember that action often comes before motivation. So don't wait for that motivation. It can be unreliable. Just act now and just that one tiny step. Action comes with tiny, tiny little steps each day. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you.
Kafka and Bond podcast is a product from Kafka and Bond & Co., which we are an authorized representative of Gen Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of the Kafka and Bond podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement, and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.